0: Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined this week from Edinburgh, as it happens, not from London, by Simon Elliott, the head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. So, uh, Simon, I don't know what you're do- Tell us what you're doing in Edinburgh, first of all, just so we know. What? Yeah, no, well, I've been up here for a couple of
1: days. Uh, Bailey Gifford have held their. Investment Trust Conference. Uh, it's a triennial event. It should have been in 2020, but for very obvious and good reasons, it's been postponed to this year. So very good to catch up with the Investment Trust stable at Bailey Gifford.
0: Indeed. And I guess uh, there'll be a lot of conversation about the markets at the moment, which has certainly not been favorable to Bailey Gifford's growth style. I think it's fair to say, but uh, well, will to hear what they have to say about that. But uh, let's kick off as normal by talking about the markets. Well, we had a bad first quarter. We had a pretty ropey April. And May isn't going quite that well either. So, uh, what's going on out there at the moment?
1: Well, it's another tough week, I think that's for sure. So, this is data for the first four trading days of the week. As usual, we're recording this on about Friday lunchtime. But in that first four days, uh, the investment company sector finds itself down about 3.1%. And I think that's the sixth consecutive week of underperformance. And in fact, the UK market is down 2%. So, it's very much the case that investment companies are lagging. The wider UK market, in terms of the sector average discount, we've seen it widen out. It started the week about seven point one percent, and certainly at the close of Thursday, it stood at eight percent. And the average so far this year is probably coming in about five percent. That compares with something nearer to three percent last year. But you're absolutely right. Look, it's been a tough period. It's the same themes that we've talked about in podcasts in weeks gone by. There's been some interesting developments in terms of U.S. inflation has moderated but it still exceeded uh, expectations it came at 8.3 percent in terms of the uk economy uh, that contracted in march and there's talk of uh, the bank of england having to raise interest rates possibly up to four percent but it's not just the kind of more mainstream markets uh, that have been hit there's been some news with regard to cryptocurrencies uh, which is not anything that you can access through investment companies at the moment but obviously a lot of people are interested in them But uh, the uh, apparently misnamed stable coins have had a bit of a torrid week. A couple have uh, failed to hold their peg against the U.S. dollars. So it seems as if many asset classes have been hit at the moment.
0: Yes, and I fear to say it's a reminder for those who uh, haven't been in the markets for a long time that uh, this is what can happen in financial markets. They can be very brutal over short periods of time. And it's a great test of character, apart from anything else, as well as uh, determining how to deal with them. And of course, it's been a long time since we had this kind of sell-off in the global equity markets. Uh, obviously, the UK is doing relatively well because of the nature of its uh, market with its heavy concentration in mining stocks and resource stocks generally, as well as uh, you know generally value stocks kind of old stodgy creatures that actually may have done relatively well in uh, in these particular conditions. It has been interesting, though, we have seen that the uh, the bond yields have come down a little bit. There was quite a lot of talk about, uh, you know, a week ago, 10 days ago, two weeks ago, about, you know, when it passed the 3%, the US 10-year passed the 3%. That might be a point at which um, some people started to think, well, maybe there was more value in bonds. Um, but what's been, uh, just to give us a quick take of the uh, theme of what uh, The guys at Bailey Gifford have had to say, the ones you've heard so far anyway, because obviously their growth style, a lot of their trusts are down very sharply. Scottish Mortgage down about 40%, I think, so far uh, from its peak. I guess they've got their eyes firmly on the longer term horizon.
1: Yeah, and that's consistent with their investment process. Obviously, you're right. Obviously, it's a very difficult year so far, uh, year to date for the majority of Bailey Gifford's uh, investment trusts. And there was some discussion of that, but they remain true to their outlook, their philosophy and their process, which actually from a kind of fund selection point of view is what you kind of hope. It becomes much more difficult when you select funds or investment trusts to do a particular job within your portfolio and then they perform in a different way other than what you expected. So clearly in the case of Bailey Gifford, given their growth approach, there is an argument this is kind of what you'd expect given the market conditions. But one of the things that did come through over the course of the conference is how uh, a number of the managers are quite excited about the opportunities that they are now seeing. So to name but one, Spencer Adair, the manager of Monks, I think he likened himself to a kid in a sweetie shop. In other words, that some of the growth companies that he's been following for a number of years but actually um, has not invested in to date or until recently because of the valuation levels he now believes are offering some pretty attractive value. So this, you know, it's still very positive on a long term outlook.
0: Yes. And one thing you can be certain of is that they're not going to change their style just because they've had a having a bad period. That's not their function. As you say, they're not trying to be funds that uh, cope in any kind of environment. OK, let's talk about some corporate news then. And we're going to kick off with Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income, ticker J-E-F-I. We talked about this several times in the last few weeks. There has been a question about whether its future is sustainable and I think we may have found the answer.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and to be honest, we, this has kind of been well flagged. I mean, basically, they've announced this week uh, that they're going to go for a, a voluntary liquidation. Um, that obviously requires shareholder approval and that will be sought at a general meeting on the 13th of June. Uh, the idea is that that approval is forthcoming and it's a special resolution by 75 percent shareholder approval. But they would then receive full cash or it'll be a full cash exit less costs. There is an issue over some of the relatively illiquid investments. I think they've got a couple of uh, Russian securities, which obviously um, almost impossible to divest of at the moment. But that seems to be all in progress. So it's the vote on the 13th of June. I think the idea is that certainly the initial cash distribution of at least 90% would follow by the end of July.
0: And we mentioned this in the past. I mean, there is often in these cases where a, a trust goes into liquidation, they offer the shareholders a rollover option. In other words, uh, the opportunity to swap their holding into another investment trust so as to preserve their capital gains Thus, taken. But we basically said before that there probably aren't enough shareholders who are sitting on capital gains in this one, unfortunately, to justify the, the time and expense of organizing a rollover option. Would that be right?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, obviously, they did look at it and they received a few approaches. But yes, you know, to your point, if you don't have capital gains and there's kind of no obvious candidate, then then I think probably just give people their cash back.
0: Indeed. And just quickly then, just to wrap up, I mean, the, the problem this trust has had is that it's never quite hit sufficient scale to justify existence. And it's had a, you know, a pretty indifferent performance record and ending up with a couple of Russian shares probably didn't help at all in the, in the, in the scheme of things. But how has it done over the course of its life?
1: Yeah, I don't have the full numbers. over re- its course of its life to hand. But I can tell you uh, in terms of its five-year track record, which is obviously a decent period, that it's given you an NAV total return of 26% uh, in that time. So, you know, compared with the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, that's up 17%. So it's not too shabby in that regard. But it's, I think it's been more, you know, a function of the size that's really been the issue here. It's got a market cap of about £57 million
0: or so at the moment. Yeah, which is a bit too small to justify pressing on. Okay, so we can move on from that one to uh, talk about another trust, which is far from uh, contracting, is is effectively kind of expanding, I guess you could say. And that is LXI REIT, ticker LXI, another specialist uh, property trust with some very distinctive features. Tell us what the news here is there.
1: Yeah, so this was a big development, actually. So LXI REIT announced this week that they'd made a recommended cash offer for another REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust, called Secure Income REIT. So effectively they're looking to merge the two companies. So it's a a rather complicated deal, but just to kind of surmise, the idea is that uh, shareholders in secure income REIT will be offered uh, a certain number of shares in LXI. Uh, There's also a kind of cash alternative uh, available to those uh, secure income REIT shareholders as well, up to 25% of the total value of consideration. So that equates to about 385 uh, million pounds. But assuming that shareholders are supportive you'll be left with a vehicle that existing LXI shareholders will own about 53%, Secure Income REIT shareholders will own about 47%. And as part of the deal, the company Pressbury Investment Partners, who are responsible for running the Secure Income REIT portfolio, will be acquired by a vehicle that effectively um LXI's management group are behind as well. So they're taking uh, the investment team in-house. Um, but certainly a high-profile deal. There's a, an investor called Nick Lesleau, who's uh, a long-term, very experienced, high-profile UK property investor. Uh, Presbury management team is effectively his vehicle, he and his partners. So it's very much about him joining the LXI team. But it will certainly create a large vehicle. They're talking about a combined value of about £3.9 billion, spread across 346 properties. Um, so that's quite a substantial property portfolio. But as I say, it's subject to shareholder approval. And assuming that's forthcoming, the deal is expected to become effective in July.
0: And as I recall, this has been a sort of on-off deal, hasn't it? I think there were some talks about it uh, towards the end of last year or maybe early this year. And they sort of stopped at one point. But obviously now they've got back together again and they finalized the terms and so on. Well, how has this been received in the market uh, Obviously, in any kind of merger, you always ask, well, who's come out better from this? How would you assess the merits for both uh, sets of shareholders?
1: Yeah, no, it's an interesting comment. So uh, basically, the merger is going to be done on an equivalent a to an NAV for NAV basis. Uh, obviously, you know, these are property companies. But what we saw is the share price of secure income REIT rose on this news. But actually, LXI REIT, which probably have the higher rated paper, it took a little bit of a leg down, certainly immediately, I think it's it's recovered a little bit since, but certainly the initial reaction, we just saw the, the share price come off a little bit as a result. But look, I mean, the, the management teams, you know, they're talking a great game, as you'd expect. They point out that they'll make substantial cost savings because of this deal. There's a change to the fee structure uh, and all the rest of it. And they make the point that actually the two property portfolios are very complementary, that there is this emphasis on inflation protected Income, long let, and index linked property assets. So, as you say, I think this is a deal that's been some time in the baking. But again, subject to shareholder approval, it looks like it's now eventually going to happen.
0: Indeed, and that if it does go through, and I'm sure it will go through, it will be a. Well, it will be interesting to see how this one gets on because its particular offering, this uh, inflation linkage, obviously could not be. Uh, more appropriate than the current climate, because a, a significant portion, I think, of the combined groups, rentals will have uh, 100% inflation protection, not just cap and collars. I think it's, uh, I saw some figures that, you know, a significant uh, minority percentage anyway will will have that kind of full inflation linkage, which will be, of course, incredibly valuable if inflation does persist. Okay, so we can move on and quickly then talk next about a brief announcement from Scott Gems, which is a emerging global emerging markets trust. We've talked about that not so recently, uh, but there's a quick update on that one.
1: Yeah, so the announcement this week on Scott Gems is that again, this is we were kind of expecting some kind of announcement update on this one. But basically, the board are looking to hold again a general meeting, and they're going to put an ordinary resolution to their shareholders on whether the fund should continue or not. So, as you remember, this was following the existing, the incumbent investment manager uh, decided to to walk away. Ascentia investors. So the board has been considering all the options for the fund's future, and that includes winding the fund up. It is quite small, but they want to not just consult shareholders, I guess, but they want to offer them a formal chance to uh, opine on what they should do before moving forward. So that's going to be a general meeting uh, in the near future.
0: Okay, well, I guess it might be difficult for them to decide if they don't have any alternatives to consider, but presumably there'll be something to say about that when uh, when we reach that point. Let's move on then, talk about some fundraising. Despite these choppy markets, we're still seeing some fundraising, and uh, it's not perhaps surprising where it's coming from, which sector it's coming from. But let's uh, talk first of all about Bluefield Solar Income, ticker B-S-I-F. What is the story there?
1: Yeah, so this is a relatively small piece of fundraising, but it's connected to an acquisition that they've done. So the acquisition is about £112 million, and it's an operational solar and wind portfolio. They're acquiring that from a UK-based fund manager. So they're going to fund that by taking on some uh, long-term debt. About £75 million worth will be assumed as part of the transaction. And they've also got an enlarged credit facility as well, which is now fully drawn. So they're looking basically to raise a little bit of capital. To kind of make this deal all work, and so the proposed issue is for up to eight million euros. That's at an issue price of 130p, and that represents a four percent premium to their NAV at the end of March. So that's all meant to happen by the 25th of May.
0: Okay, and now we can talk about Ecofin US Renewables Infrastructure ticker R N E W. Another one, obviously, in the renewable energy space. And uh, what are they proposing?
1: Yeah, so slightly larger uh, placing a retail offer here. Um, Basically, they're looking to issue shares just short of 25 million shares, and that will be at a price of one dollar and they They're looking, in other words, to raise about $25 million via a placing and retail offering. The placing price represents a a 5% discount to the the closing share price just before the announcement of the deal and a 4% premium to their end of March NAV. But the idea is that the proceeds will be used to partially repay their credit facility and also to fund their near-term pipeline of new investments. They value that at about $51 million, which apparently are currently committed or close to execution. So that placing will close on the 19th of May, which is Thursday next week.
0: Just remind us, how big is uh, ECOFIN US renewables infrastructure? How does it fit into the sector? What sort of yield is it offering?
1: Yeah, so I've got it on a market cap of about 108 billion sterling or so at the moment. So it's certainly not one of the largest names, but it's a relatively new arrival in terms of its yield. I've got it on a historic base at about 4% or so at the moment.
0: OK, so we can move on now to some results. Uh, before I do that, I might just mention this week in the Moneymakers Circle, we have a uh, one of our in-depth profiles, this one of BlackRock Throgmorton, which is uh, a very has been very successful over the last few years, both in uh, raising funds and in performance. Uh, One of the few small caps to trade uh, around par for a long time or even at a premium, though not at the moment. So one of the questions is, is that made it a good opportunity in the current market conditions? Uh, We've also got one of our reviews of discount opportunities and uh, some comments on the overriding issue of the day, which is, are we really going into an even worse bear market than we are at the moment? So, that's all in the moneymaker's circle for subscribers. We move on, though, and talk about some results starting with North Atlantic smaller companies, ticker NAS, uh, a very interesting long-standing investment trust. What have uh, their annual results looked like?
1: So, these were annual results for the year to the end of January. So, the NAV per share, that was up about 9.2%. That compared with a rise of 24% for the S&P 500, which isn't really reflective of the portfolio in any way, shape or form, or a slight decline, about 0.2% down for the Russell 2000 index. The share price was up 12.5% actually as the discount narrowed in a bit to about 25%. But it's a very interesting portfolio. This one, uh, a gentleman called Christopher Mills of Harvard Capital, we talked about Harvard a few times, I think, He's been the long-standing manager of this one, and it's very, very stock-specific. So, the names that worked for the portfolio in the period, it's names such as AssetCo, Orgean, uh, Hargreaves Services, a Signature, the kind of laggards or the detractors were Polar Capital Holdings, uh, and Gleason did work quite so well. But it's also got holdings in a couple of other investment companies, so Oryx uh, International and Odyssean Investment Trust that we have talked about on one or two occasions. But certainly, he's sitting on a bit of cash at the moment. I think, in fact, at the end of January, cash and U.S. Treasury bills came in about £147 million. And uh, I think Christopher's quite happy to have a little bit of dry powder at his disposal, apparently, to take advantage of current weaknesses in equity markets, although the managers expect that weakness to persist for several months yet.
0: Yeah, well, there's one view about that. Interesting. So let's talk next about downing strategic microcap who's reported some annual results for the year to the 28th of February, and their ticker DSM.
1: That's right. And in that year, they saw their NAV per share rise about 5.3%. Uh, their share price is not quite as strong, actually. That was up about 1%. Now, they don't really have a, a benchmark, but certainly when you compare them with the FTSE AIM All Share Index, that was down 12% in that financial year. So as the name would suggest, this is quite a specialist vehicle. It uh, invests in UK microcaps, which are invariably defined as those with market caps below about £150 million. There's a few names in this space, but uh, Downing is differentiated by uh, a very concentrated portfolio between about 12 and 18 positions under ordinary circumstances. In that year, their main contributors to performance were Volex, Flowtech and Hargreaves services, while the largest detractors included Centaur Synthetics and Venture Life. I think probably the other key thing to note is that the board is quite mindful of the discount that this particular investment trust trades on. Uh, And as part of the measures that they want to put in place to address that, uh, they've said that they will provide a 50% redemption opportunity uh, on the 31st of May 2024. I mean, that's subject to, as they put it, no serious market disruption. But I think the intention is that they want to put some liquidity event at the table, but at the same time, mindful of the size of this particular vehicle. So it's got a market cap of about £33 million at the moment. So I think most people would suggest that that's sub-optimal. But uh, with a 21% discount at present, um, they've got to uh, address that before they can grow.
0: Indeed they have. So that's quite brave to promise to provide a 50% redemption opportunity because unless they can grow it in the meantime, you would think that they might have some questions about their future scale and survivability, if I can use that word. I'm not sure it is in English word, but anyway, I'll use it nonetheless. We know what you mean. <laughs> and how have they done since, uh, well, can you look over three months, say, or since the start of the year? I mean, how have they performed in the in this particular market climate?
1: So over the last three months, they're down about four, this is NAV terms, they're down about 4%, NAV down about 6% over six months. So I would suggest that's not as bad as some of their peers. In fact, if you look at Mitent UK microcap, that's down 8% over the last three months, or uh, River Mercantile UK microcap down 18% over the last three months. I'm sure both those peers would suggest you've got to look at the long-term numbers. And on that basis, River Mercantile has the bragging rights up 37% over five years. NAV total return might end up 33%, while Downing is down 10% over that five-year period. So they've certainly held up better in recent times, but their long-term track record is behind their peers.
0: Okay, so let's now talk about BlackRock Greater Europe. We've talked about these quite recently in connection with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Ticker BRGE, they have produced some interim results.
1: Absolutely. Interim results for the six months to the end of February. Uh, in that time, they saw an NAV total return down 20%. That compared with a decline of 7.8% for the FTSE World Europe X UK index. So in other words, a substantial underperformance and share price terms. a little bit worse. Actually, share price total return down nearly 22%. However, they make the point that of the 12.2% of underperformance, just under half of that was attributed to holdings in Russia. So just to remind people, the mandate of this particular investment trust is obviously European equities, but includes emerging Europe as well. And exposure to Russian holdings, there were only about 1% or so at the end of February, but it was actually 5.7% at the end of January. So one suspects that hurt quite a lot. Um, all their remaining Russian exposures has been written down to zero after the period end. And the intention is to sell those holdings whenever it's possible to do so. But other detractors included Lonza Group, Diasorin and Net Company Group, although there were a number of positive contributions as well. Relics, Novonorsk, LVMH, National Bank of Greece and Israeli ICL Group. But, uh, you know, so there's probably a little bit of a kind of growth bias there. But they made the point that the negative share price moves that they'd seen were really driven by factor moves, as they put it, it as in other words, a kind of style headwind rather than earnings disappointments or weaker fundamentals.
0: Indeed, okay. So now we can move across the other side of the world, or nearly across the other side of the world, to Pacific Assets ticker PAC, and they've also had some results.
1: Yep, these were final results for the year ended 31st of January, and they saw an NAV total return in positive territory up 9.1 percent, and that compared. With a decline of 9.2% for the MSCI All Country Asia ex Japan Index, and also, and this is what they do compare them uh, performance against, a rise of 11.5% for the CPI Index plus 6%. In terms of share price return, that wasn't quite as good actually. That was up 2.9%. But overall, the investment trust benefited from being underweight large cap Chinese internet stocks. Last year was certainly not the time to hold those. And that reflected the fact the manager was concerned about political interference. uh, And obviously, those concerns uh, were well placed. And this vehicle does have quite a bias to India, about 46%. I think at the end of February or March, uh, was exposed to India. And certainly in this period that we're talking about, eight of the top 10 contributors were listed in India.
0: So can you remind me who the managers of this trust are and uh, what its kind of uh, performance has been like over five and 10 years?
1: Well, David Gate has been involved in this one, I think, over 10 years now, July 2010. uh, and He's part of Stuart Investors. And I think there's been uh, an element of kind of more ESG-type orientation. I think his investment approach, I I think he's been obviously following this for a number of years, but I think we'd recognize it now as being quite uh, ESG-friendly and focused. In terms of the track record, over the last five years in NAV total return terms, they're up 45%. That compares with, say, the MSL Country Asia Pacific X Japan Index. That's up 24%. So an outperformance in that regard. But actually, he's probably lagged other names in his peer groups, such as Pacific Horizon, which is a Bailey Gifford fund. That's up 144%. Or Schroeder Asian total return, that's up 52%.
0: Okay, moving on then. We're going to talk about some specialist uh, trusts now. First up is one of the biggies in this particular category, and that is 3I Group, ticker III unsurprisingly, and uh, they produced their annual results.
1: That's right. So these were the results for the year to the 31st of March, um, and a strong set of results for 3i, actually. Their NAV was up about 39% in that time. In fact, NAV total return up 44%. So they generated about 4 billion or so. That was really driven by their private equity business. And a big part of that was action. We talked about action uh, on a number of occasions in the past. This is the kind of discount retail or discounted non-food retailers, I think they classify it. But the value of that holding was written up by about 2.6, 2.7 billion sterling. And that reflected the growth in revenue in EBITDA of about 23% and 36% respectively in 2021. However, there are other things other than action going on across the wider 3i group. So, they deployed capital of about 529 million in six new investments during that year. uh, And they also made a couple of big bolt-on acquisitions as well. Uh, and they also saw some realizations and refinancing as well. That came in uh, generated cash of about $1.2 billion. It's also worth noting as well, they've got an, an investment in 3i infrastructure, so the infrastructure business, and that obviously performed well as well. So, they saw a return of 21% from that business. And they've also got a holding in a company called Scanlines as well. So, overall, 3i goes from strength to strength. Uh, and I saw a headline this week that actually they are now technically, once again, the largest uh, investment trust company. So, in other words, they've overtaken uh, Scottish Mortgage.
0: Yes, Um, I I was going to mention that. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, for years we talked about Three Eyes being the the sort of big beast in the jungle and so much so that it was excluded from the statistics because it would sort of bias the figures. But now it's back on top. I mean, the story of action has been quite remarkable. It must be one of the most successful private equity investments of all time in terms of its ability to go on producing uh, returns of of an extraordinary scale. I mean, if the value of action is up by two and a half billion, I mean, that is a significant gain. Well, that's more than uh, most investment trusts have had overall. It has been quite extraordinary.
1: It has. And I think it justifies, certainly at this point in time, 3i's decision to keep that investment going. I mean, there have been a number of liquidity events for action over the period in which they
0: have been invested, but the team at 3i are happy to keep riding this one. Indeed and one can see why. So moving on, let's talk about HG Capital Trust, ticker HGT, another private equity group, which had uh, an update this time, just an NAV update.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's an update for the first quarter of the year, but I thought it'd be worth mentioning in as much as obviously there's been a lot of talk about private equity and how they might be faring at the moment. And obviously there has been a derating of pretty much all of the private equity names so far this year, and HG Capital is no exception. But actually in terms of the update, uh, so this is three months to the end of March, Their NEV is down 0.6% since the end of 2021. In fact, share price terms over that period, they're up about 4.8%. However, they made the point, and I think this is what's quite interesting here, that their top 20 holdings are still seeing some very strong sales in EBITDA growth. So, they were up 31% and 27% on a last 12-month basis. So, what that meant to the valuations of the portfolio, so looking at the trading, that increased the value by about $110 However, that was offset or largely offset by the decline in comparable market multiples. So that detracted 92 million. So there's this idea here that even though we're seeing public markets sell off, these small cap growth companies being derated, that actually in terms of the private equity names at least, that some of their underlying are still performing on a fundamental basis.
0: Yes, I mean, HG Capital Trust has always been known because it has got a pretty high tech weighting. So uh, I guess we should be watching with uh, some interest uh, how its performance goes over the course of this year, given what's happened to, you know, the ratings of tech stocks in general. But I think their point is, uh, you know, is well made. If they've got the best companies still making money, that's one thing. But they won't be necessarily immune to further derating, uh, if it carries on the way we have been uh, carrying on so far this year. Would that be a reasonable observation? Yeah. And, and, you know, looking at their uh,
1: discount uh, at the moment, I mean, I've got it on about a 15% discount that compares to an average over the previous 12 months of about 0.5%. So they have been derated. I suspect the point that they would make is that, you know, when we talk about tech companies or they talk about tech enabled companies, that there's a whole kind of spectrum of these companies and the ones that certainly they have backed historically are actually very profitable cash generative companies. Now, obviously, that's not true of all high growth companies. Tech companies, uh, many are you know, effectively kind of revenue-growing machines that they've never uh, turned a dollar profit, but that's not the case in, in HG. So I think there's an element here that all growth is tarnished with the same brush, which is not necessarily warranted.
0: Indeed. And if you believe that, then you might be thinking, well, this uh, discount is beginning to look quite interesting. You might. Moving on to ICG Enterprise Trust, ticker ICGT, a different kind of vehicle, but a similar private equity uh, entity. And they've had some results for the 12 months to 31st of January.
1: That's right, annual results and a strong set of results actually. So the NAV total return was up 24% in that period. Um, they've now got net assets, or they did at the end of January, about £1.2 billion. The share price total return was even stronger actually, up 27.1% and they increased their dividend as well. That was up 12.5% year on year. But again, the familiar story, and this is, feels a little historic now, really, we're talking about the 12 months to the end of January, but a very strong period for realizations. They generated £334 million, and that included a number of full exits with an average uplift, to carrying value of about 36%. So this idea that 2021 was a great period for private equity, not least because they were selling a lot of their holdings, at you know pretty decent uplifts. They also made some new investments, over £300 million worth, and that included 61% into what they call high conviction investments. So just to remind people, ICG Enterprise is a little bit of a hybrid vehicle. in as much as it invests alongside ICG, so its investment manager, uh, it also makes co-investments and gets involved in, in secondaries as well. So this idea that you are getting the kind of diversification that you would get from other fund of private equity funds, but there's, it's a little bit more concentrated at the top of the portfolio. So high conviction investments represented about 49% of the portfolio at the end of January.
0: And I guess it is worth making the secondary point about discounts. I mean, we say that I think in the case of uh, this one, uh, apart from the pandemic sell-off, it's trading at a wider discount than it has for, uh, for a long, long time. But of course, the NAV, which we're comparing the share price to, is the last one was at the end of January. So what we're looking at is a share price that is presumably pricing in a ratio to the current NAV. And if that NAV is down, then the discount might not be quite so, uh, if you like, not as real as it is apparent. Would that be a sensible thing to say?
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And that would be true for all the kind of funder funds, actually. There is this lag with the NAVs and getting the valuations. And obviously, you know, thirty first of December in the case of ICG, thirty first of January, the world has changed quite a lot in the last three or four months. So it would be reasonable to assume that uh, some of those valuations have declined. The question is, to what extent has there been an overreaction in terms of the share price and then, you know, the secondary point, and what's the outlook going forward? It's not just what they're valued at today, but what are their prospects looking like on a whatever your investment time frame is, 12, 18
0: months or five-year, 10-year view. Much to ponder. So let's talk about uh, Polar Capital Global Healthcare Trust, ticker PCGH. Uh, healthcare sectors normally regarded as being, or at least amongst the larger uh, healthcare stocks, uh, not necessarily the biotech and, uh, you know, sexier stuff in smaller regions. But uh, how has this particular trust performed? It's had some interim results till the end of March in this case.
1: Yeah, that's right. The six-month period to the end of March. So, they saw an NAV total return just up over 5% and that was broadly in line with their benchmark. The the discount widened uh, a little. But I think probably the interesting point here is that they've actually increased their allocation to biotech. It stood at 15% at the start of the period to the end of September last year. That's nearer to 20% or something was at the end of March. And that's a reflection of the fact that the investment team believes that the sell-off uh, presents a bit of an opportunity. So in terms of where the portfolio is overall, whether underweight the uh, large cap names in their index and overweight mid and small cap. But the manager also made the argument that actually healthcare offers some protection against stagflation. Uh, obviously, that's something that we're increasingly talking about now in general. Um, but they argued that demand uh, for healthcare in general is uncorrelated with both GDP and inflation.
0: Okay, so now we can talk about infrastructure. We talked about 3i itself and we can quickly catch up with uh, 3i Infrastructure's results as well. They've also put out their annual results uh, this, to the 31st of March. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. And I mentioned in the context of the 3i Group, the infrastructure done well and uh, that's certainly the case. So, the NAV total return in the 12-month period to the end of March came in at 17.2%. Um, that compares with the target annualized target return of between 8 and 10% per annum. Um so that was certainly impressive. Um what's going on? Well, they've seen some valuation gains uh, during the year. I think probably the largest came from a realization of European storage terminals that were held by Oyster Catchers, so that's one of the companies in the portfolio and that generated 121 million pounds. Um their share price total return was actually 20.9% in the period and since this fund's IPO. It comes in at 13.1%. So, they're seeing some strong cash generation that totaled 143 million pounds in the period. That was up year on year from 117 million pounds. And they've also made some new investments as well. So, they continue to kind of build out their portfolio. They've got involved in a global data communications company that apparently owns the world's largest private subsea fiber network. And they've also invested in their temporary traffic management equipment company as well. But they're still sitting on quite a bit of cash. In fact, I think the liquidity available at the end of March totaled £484 million. So they're certainly well placed should they decide to make further investments.
0: Okay, next up is Aquila European Renewables Income, ticker AERS. This is just an NAV update. We can skip through one or two of these, I think, probably.
1: Yeah. So just very quickly, um, I mean, it was a positive number. So in that three-month period to the end of March, they generated a 2% NAV total return. And again, a familiar story. So what benefited them is the short-term forecast power curves, uh, an increase in the short-term uh, inflation forecast as well. So that was really what drove that NAV.
0: Okay. Next up is uh, Downing Renewables and Infrastructure, ticker D-O-R-E. They've also had an NAV update. Yep, and a very similar story. Actually, a stronger set of numbers. So the NAV
1: total return came in at seven point six percent. But again, it's, uh, it's the, the changes in the power price assumptions, the change in the short-term inflation assumptions, and they also benefited from some operational profit as well. So yeah, overall, it was a, it was a positive
0: update. Then we can talk about Jalen Environmental Assets Group. This is NAV forward guidance.
1: Yeah. And this is kind of interesting because, you know, NAV forward guidance is not something that you'd ordinarily see in the investment company space. And yet in the last few weeks, some of these renewable energy infrastructure funds have felt compelled to provide some guidance to the marketplace because of the big step up that they're seeing in their NAVs versus what you would ordinarily expect. So in the case of JLEN Environmental Assets Group, their forward guidance is that they uh, expect an uplift of between 13 and 15% for their NAV at the end of March relative to the end of 2021. So that's the guidance. And again, why have they provided that? That's reflecting the higher short-term prior prices and inflation expectations. But also, they've seen gains from moving certain assets from an acquisition cost basis to a discounted cash flow valuation basis. But we'll get the kind of NAV and the NAV update later this month.
0: Okay. So at what point generally, would just on that small point, would you expect to see somebody switch from an acquisition cost to a discounted cash flow valuation basis? That presumably is as the investment matures, you've got a better handle on how to value it rather than just taking it at the price you pay for it. Would that be right?
1: Yes. And uh, without knowing the deals in question, it might have been the case that there was a development element to it. um, And that once it was kind of operational, then you, you value it on a different basis. It might be just a simply a reflection of that that the market's moved on from the point of the, the, the price they agreed on acquisition to the price where they are at the moment. And they've just seen an uplift when they've actually kind of put it through their valuation system. So there might be a few different things going on there.
0: So you need to look at the numbers there to be clear. But I mean, if they're right, I mean, the shares trade on a premium, I'm sure. Uh, but this would be a case where if you actually took the NAV that they're predicting, it might not be trading on a premium at all. How would those two numbers look compared
1: yeah, no, it's a really good point. So, I mean, we're running off a NAV of 99p or so. I mean, I think the NAV at the end of 2021 was about 100 spot 7p. So, you know, after dividends, that's probably there are thereabouts. But if you factor in a 13 to 15% uplift, then obviously that NAV is uh, materially increased. The share price that was suddenly at the close of Thursday uh, was about 119 spot 4p. So, notionally on a 20, percent premium. However, if you do kind of move that NAV up, then that premium contracts substantially.
0: So we're looking at a group here where, unlike the private equity, where we may be seeing, you know, market valuation come down, these guys have all been marking them up because of the uh, the strong power prices, in particular. And then finally, next energy solar uh, ticker NESF. They've also had a, an update.
1: Exactly, and and again, it's exactly the same story. Um, the NAV is up eight point seven percent, so nine point one p in the quarter. And again, it's the power price forecast. It's the update to short-term inflation assumptions. Uh, And also, they've seen some uplift from power price purchase agreements as well. They haven't changed their discount rate assumptions. uh, But what they have done is that they've increased their target dividend. So, a 5% increase in their target dividend to 7.52p. And that represents a 4.1% increase above 2021 RPI. One does wonder how relevant that is, given where inflation has moved to this year. But anyway, they made that point.
0: <laughs> Indeed. OK, so just quickly, then, are the ones we've looked at in this section? What's the range of sort of discounts? I mean, most of these ones will be trading at a premium, right? I think that's uh, pretty taken as red, I imagine, albeit that the NAVs might be a little bit out of date. So um, what's trading on the, on the richest premium, shall we say? Gosh, well, I
1: mean, JLEN Environmental, as discussed, though, obviously, if that NEV comes in as they've guided, then that uh, comes down a lot. I mean, the other names that we talked about, so Next Energy Solar, that's only on about a 1% premium or so at the moment. I mean, again, as we discussed in previous podcasts, solar tends not to be as highly rated as some of the other names. I mean, the Ecofin Fund, I think we talked about earlier, that's on about a 7% premium or so at the moment. And Aquila, not to be confused with Aquila Energy Efficiency Trust, that's a different vehicle entirely, but Aquila European Renewables, that's on about a 2% premium uh, as well. While 3i Infrastructure that we talked about, that is on quite a significant premium and has historically traded well. So I've got it on about a 24% premium, that compares to an average of about 20% over the previous 12 months.
0: Yeah, that's a fancy number indeed. So finally, then we can move on. We've got a couple of updates from the property sector. We've talked a lot about that uh, in recent weeks. And obviously, the LXI secure income REIT uh, merger is interesting in this space. But let's first just uh, talk about Civitas Social Housing. Again, I might say, uh, ticker CSH, where they are fighting back from their issues they've had with uh, regulators and short sellers. Uh, What is the latest update from them?
1: Yeah. So, again, it's uh, positive in terms of the NAV per share was up uh, just under 2% in the three-month period to the, the end of March They've been busy in terms of acquisitions. They've made eight million pounds worth of acquisitions. They've acquired 47 properties in that period. And they made the point uh, in terms of the rent and the linkage with uh, indexation and inflation that apparently 27% of the rents benefit from indexation at CPI plus 1% with the balance of 73% linked to CPI. So this idea that you are getting inflation uh, linkage although they made the point that 31% of rents are subject to a cap and a collar between 0 and 4%. But I think probably the big news coming out of this update is that they've drafted up a new lease clause. And the aim is to enable housing associations to, uh, apparently, to achieve greater alignment between the income receipts and lease liabilities. And the idea is that this draft clause, once enacted, will operate on a property-by-property basis – to provide for a kind of temporary pass-through of the lease rent in certain circumstances when the housing association is not in receipt of full payment. So what they're trying to do here is they're trying to address the issue that they've got these very long dated leases and yet actually for a lot of these housing associations they've got quite short-term revenue visibility and this is one of the issues that the regulator has been kind of flagging up and, and uh, you know called them out on, on several occasions. so they're trying to redraft their leases to reflect this, to kind of effectively provide a bit of wriggle room. So, it'll be interesting to see how this goes. The intention is that the clause will be incorporated initially into a limited number of existing leases on a retrospective basis. And they're just going to start off with the properties that are currently unencumbered. So, you know, will it make a difference? Well, the jury's out. It remains to be seen. But you can see that they're trying to address
0: one of the big uh, issues that they've faced over the last year. Indeed. But so far, the share price is still very weak, is it not?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've Got it at the close of Thursday on about 85p. That represents probably about a 22% discount also at the moment, and and obviously that's a lot wider than it would have been. What it would have been trading on a premium before this all kind of blew up
0: last year. And as we said, one of the issues for them is that uh, if they're no longer trading at a premium, it becomes harder for them to raise more money. So it must put a limit on how much they can grow this trust if they don't have access to the market. Though obviously they've succeeded in making this acquisition without any difficulty. for It's only for $8 though. Let's talk about custodian REIT finally, uh, ticker CREI. Uh, they've also had a NAV update.
1: That's right. So this again, it's a Q1 update. So the pre-month period to the end of March, uh, they saw an NAV total return of 6.4% in that period. And in fact, the portfolio was valued at £665 million, containing 160 regional properties. They declared a dividend of 1.375p in respect to the quarter, and that was in line with the previous quarter. But certainly in the financial year to the 31st of March 2023, they're targeting dividends of no less than 5.5p. So that's what they're trying to drive to. Uh, And in terms of their earnings per share in that first quarter of this year, that came in at 1.6p. And overall, the 12-month period to the end of March, that came in at 5.9p.
0: And what kind of yields are we getting on these two? Uh, obviously, very different creatures, but uh, Civitas Social Housing and this one. What, uh, what sort of yield are we getting on that on Custodian?
1: Yeah, so Custodian REIT has got a yield on a historic basis of about 5.3% or so. At the moment, that's trading on about a 16% discount. It's got a market cap of $440 million. Uh, Civitas Social Housing, who to date at least has uh, maintained its dividends. So on a historic basis, uh, they're offering 6.5% yield. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, they've got a 22% discount now, but still with a market cap of 519 million.
0: So that just leaves us then with a final question uh, for you, Simon. Really, I look forward to hearing next week maybe any any more insights from the Bailey Gifford event. But in general terms, what we've noted in the last well, the last few weeks particularly, we've suddenly seen a lot of favorite uh, trusts uh, that were trading very well only last year, suddenly moving to quite what appear to be quite large discounts. Uh, are you detecting uh, signs of your clients or institutions coming in looking to do a little bit of what is known as bottom fishing here? Or do you think that with the momentum running so strongly at the moment that they're going to sit back and wait for uh, this thing to settle down first?
1: Yeah, no, it's a good question. Look, I mean, it, it's very much a talking point. Uh, and in fact, again, at the kind of Bailey Giver conference that we mentioned at the start of the podcast, it's, it's probably the, most of the delegates' first point of conversation, uh, you know, what stage... Do you get involved, or is it a little bit too soon? You know, lots of discussion about you know, catching falling knives and uh, people remembering back to after the tech boom went to bust in uh, 2000 and how you know it took some time for that all to unwind, it didn't pay to get involved uh, too early. But we are seeing some investment trusts derated. Obviously, we talked about HG Capital, but some of the the names that retail investors have favoured over the last few years. I mean, I think we talked about Smithson last week, probably on about a 10% discount. I mean, you mentioned BlackRock from Wharton Trust on a 14% discount. And you can kind of go on through the list that certainly on a on a Z score basis, so looking at how these funds have been rated on the previous 12 months, that many now are on quite uh, extreme levels. We have seen a marked derating, But we can understand the reasons why that might have happened.
0: So it is a very difficult market uh,
1: at the moment.
0: Indeed, and it's, uh, that's why it's so challenging, because it's psychologically very difficult to do. We might have thought to yourself a couple of years ago, well, I'm sorry I had to pay such a big premium for XYZ Trust, but that was what the price was. And now here we are two years later, and it's at a big discount, but I'm still not buying it, because this time there's another reason why I don't do it. So uh, it's, uh, it's very challenging psychologically to steer your path through these uh, particularly choppy markets, uh, when particularly when there's as yet no sign of a uh, change in direction. Well, that's going to be a theme we're going to be talking about, I suspect, a lot over the course of the summer. The old market saying sell in May and go away uh, doesn't apply to us. We should be back next week, for better or worse. And uh, we look forward to uh, continuing our conversations then, uh, Simon. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you.
1: This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.